Section 17 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth, Volume 4, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 76. Only a Pauper. The spirit of reform was impelling Lord Grey's government in other directions, as well as in those which led to the abolition of slavery in the colonies. The improved conditions of the factory works and the introduction of some better method for the collecting of tithes. The state of the poor laws all over the country had long been attracting the attention of thoughtful, philanthropic, and at the same time practical men. The administration of relief to the poor was still conducted up to Lord Grey's reforming administration on the same general principle as that which had been embodied in the famous statute of Queen Elizabeth. The manner in which that principle had been working during the intervening centuries was only another illustration of Burke's maxim about systems founded on the heroic virtues, to which we have lately made reference in this volume. The statute of Elizabeth was based on the principle that the state, or at least the local authorities, ought to find relief for the deserving poor. The duty of making provision for the deserving poor was left in the hands of those who managed the affairs of the parishes, of whom the local clergy and magistrates were the principal personages. The means had to be furnished by the taxpayers, and the influential men of each parish were left to decide as to the claims and the deserts of the applicants. There was no regular body answerable to public opinion, nor was there, indeed, any practical way in which the public of a district could very effectively express itself. Nothing could be better arranged for the development of that benevolent spirit which Sidney Smith describes as common to all humanity, and under the influence of which no sooner does A hear that B is in distress than he thinks C ought at once to relieve him men and women had only to go and say that they were in distress and some influential persons in the neighbourhood were sure to find that the easiest way of doing a benevolent act was to provide them with orders for parochial relief inside or outside the workhouse there seemed to be a sort of easy-going impression prevailing everywhere that when a man or woman or a family had once been set down for relief from the rates the enrollment ought to endure as a kind of property for life and even as an inheritance for future generations. The grant of parish relief under the old ways has been humorously likened to a state pension which, when it has once been given, is never supposed to be revoked during the lifetime of the privileged pensioner. But the presumption in the case of those relieved by the parish had a still more abiding efficacy for it was assumed that if a man got parish relief for himself and his family the beneficent endowment was to pass onward from generation to generation it is quite certain that whole races of paupers began to grow up in the country one family depending on the rates engendering another family who were likewise to be dependent on the rates thus the vice of lazy and shiftless poverty was bequeathed from pauper sire to son in the case of the ordinary man or woman, there was no incitement to industry and perseverance. The idle pauper would be fed in any case, and no matter how hard he worked at the ordinary labor within his reach, he could only hope to be 
poorly fed. Indeed, even the man who had an honest inclination for honest labor was very much in the condition of the Irish cottier tenant, described many years afterwards by John Stuart Mill as one who could neither benefit by his industry nor suffer by his improvidence. The system may be said without exaggeration to have put a positive premium on immorality among the poorer class of women in a district, for an unmarried girl who had pauper offspring to show was sure to receive the liberal benefit of parochial relief. Pity was easily aroused for her youth, her fall, her deserted condition when her lover or betrayer had taken himself off to some other district. Any tale of deceived innocence was readily believed, and so far as physical comforts go, the unmarried mother was generally better off than the poor, toiling, and virtuous wife of the hard-working laborer who found her family growing and her husband's wages without any increase. Then, of course, there was all manner of jobbery and a certain kind of corruption among parish officials and the local tradesmen and employers of labor generally, which grew to be an almost recognized incident of the local institutions. Labor could be got on cheaper terms than the ordinary market rates if the employers could have men or women at certain seasons of the year whom the parish was willing to maintain in idleness for the rest of the time. Small contracts of all kinds were commonly made, in this sort of fashion, between parish officials and local employers, and the whole system of relief seemed to become converted into a corrupting influence, pervading the social life, and showing its effects in idleness, immorality, and an infectious disease of pauperism. Owing to the many misinterpretations of the laws of settlement, it was often easy for a rich and populous district to fling much of its floating pauperism on some poorer region, and thus it frequently happened that the more poverty-stricken the parish, the greater was the proportion of unsettled pauperism for which it had to provide. In many districts, the poorer classes of ratepayers were scarcely a degree better off than the actual paupers whom they were taxed to support. Thus, many a struggling family became pauperized in the end, because of the increase in the rates which the head of the family could no longer pay, and the exhausted breadwinner, having done his best to keep himself and his family independent, had at last to eat the bread of idleness from parish relief, or to starve with his family by the roadside. Things had come to such a pass, indeed, that many earnest and capable observers like Lord Brougham, Mr. Nassau Sr., and Miss Martineau, were beginning to advocate the doctrine that no remedy could be found for the system of legalized poor relief short of its total abolition. It was gravely contended by many reformers, whose guiding spirit was pure love of humanity, that the best course for the government to take would be to abolish the poor relief system altogether and leave the really deserving poor to the mercy of private benevolence. By such a measure it was contended Private charity would be left to find out its own, and would before long find out its own, and the charity thus given would carry with it no demoralizing effect, but would be bestowed, as all true charity is bestowed, with the object of enabling those whom it helped to help themselves after a while. The owner of an estate, it was argued, can easily find out where there is genuine distress among those who depend upon him, 
and can sustain them through their time of need so that when their hour of sickness or enforced idleness is over they may be able to begin again with renewed energy and work with the honest purpose of making themselves independent it was urged that the operation of the legalized poor law relief could only create new pauperism wherever its unwholesome touch was felt it would impress on the well-inclined and the industrious the futility of honest and persevering endeavor inasmuch as idleness could get itself better cared for than laborious poverty idleness and immorality it was argued were well housed and fed while honest independence and virtue were left outside in cold and hunger the study of political economy was even already beginning to be a part of the education of most men who took any guiding place or even any observant interest in the national life writers who dealt with such subjects were beginning to find readers among the general public some of the members of lord grey's own administration had taken a close interest in such questions the whole subject of poor relief and its distribution was one of the earliest which came under the consideration of the liberal government after the passing of the reform bill it was clear that something would soon have to be done and as the whig ministers had a good deal of other work on their hands the natural course at such a time was to appoint a commission which should inquire into the whole system of poor law relief and report to the government as to the best means for its reorganization such a commission was appointed and set at once to its work among the commissioners and the assistant commissioners nominated for the purpose were some men whose names are well remembered in our own days one of those was mr nassau senior a man of great ability and wide practical information who distinguished himself in many other fields of literary work as well as that which belonged to what may be called the literature of pure economics another was mr edwin afterwards sir edwin chadwick who was a living and an active presence until a very short time ago among those who devoted themselves to the study and the propagation of what are called social science principles and whose work was highly valued by so well qualified a critic as john stuart mill the commission made careful inquiry into the operation of the poor law relief system and presented a report which marked an epoch in our social history and might well have a deep interest even for the casual student of to-day the result of the inquiries made was such as to satisfy the commissioners that the administration of the poor law had increased the evils of pauperism wherever it found them already in existence and had created and fostered evils of the same kind even in regions which had not known them before they were touched by its contagion the report of the commissioners pronounced that the existing system of poor law was destructive to the industry and honesty and forethought of the laborers to the wealth and morality of the employers of labor and the owners of property and to the mutual goodwill and happiness of all this may be thought a very sweeping condemnation but the more closely the evidence is studied the more clearly it will be seen that where the poor relief system had any effect worth taking into calculation this was the sort of effect it produced the real objects of the legalized poor law reform system were well and even liberally described in the report of the commissioners the object of poor relief as the commissioners defined it should be to make provision for that proportion to be found in almost every community 
which is plunged into such a condition of distress that it never can hope to be self-supporting again, and for that more fluctuating proportion made up of those who at the time are unable to support themselves, but whom some temporary relief may enable to return to their former condition of independence. In each class of cases, it ought to be made equally clear before public relief were called in that those in distress, continuous or temporary, had no near relatives in a condition to afford them reasonable assistance without undue sacrifice. Of course it was understood that these conditions included the men and women who, owing to some temporary lack of employment, were actually unable to find the means of living by their own honest labor. The ideas of the commissioners were not pedantically economical in their range, nor did they insist that public relief must be given only as the reward of personal integrity when visited by undeserved misfortune. It was freely admitted that even where men and women had allowed themselves by idleness or carelessness to sink into actual poverty, it was better to give them temporary relief at the public expense than allow them to take up with the ways of crime or leave them to pay the penalty of their wrongdoings by death from starvation. But it was strictly laid down that a healthy system of public relief was to help men and women for a time, in order that they might be able to help themselves once again as soon as possible, and to make provision for those who had done their work and could do no more, and who had no near relatives in a condition to help them from starvation. The report of the commissioners pointed out that the existing system collects and chains down the laborers in masses without any reference to the demand for their labor, that while it increases their numbers, it impairs the means by which the fund of their subsistence is to be reproduced, and impairs the motives for using those means which it suffers to exist, and that every year and every day these evils are becoming more overwhelming in magnitude and less susceptible of cure." The passages which we have quoted are taken from the recommendations of Mr. Chadwick. He goes on to say that, of those evils, that which consists merely in the amount of the rates, an evil great when considered by itself, but trifling when compared with the moral effects which I am deploring, might be much diminished by the combination of workhouses, and by substituting a rigid administration and contract management for the existing scenes of neglect, extravagance, jobbery, and fraud. Mr. Chadwick points out that, if no relief were allowed to be given to the able-bodied or to their families, except in return for adequate labor or in a well-regulated workhouse, the worst of the existing sources of evil, the allowance system, would immediately disappear. A broad line would be drawn between the independent laborers and the paupers, the numbers of paupers would be immediately diminished in consequence of the reluctance to accept relief on such terms, and would be still further diminished in consequence of the increased fund for the payment of wages occasioned by the diminution of rates, and would ultimately, instead of forming a constantly increasing proportion of our whole population, become a small, well-defined part of it, capable of being provided for at expense less than one-half of the present poor rates. And finally, it was urged that it is essential to every one of these improvements that the administration of the poor laws should be entrusted, as to their general superintendence, to one central authority with extensive powers, and as to their details, 
to paid officers acting under the consciousness of constant superintendence and strict responsibility. On these reports and recommendations, the new measure for the reorganization of the poor law system was founded. The main objects of the measure were to divide these countries for poor relief purposes into areas of regular and, in a certain sense, of equal proportions, so that the whole burden of poverty should not be cast for relief on one particular district, while a neighboring and much richer district was able to escape from its fair measure of liability, to have the relief administered not by local justices or parish clergymen, but by representative bodies duly elected and responsible to public opinion, and by the creation of one great central board, charged with the duty of seeing to the proper administration of the whole system. Thus it will be observed that the main principle of the Reform Bill, the principle of representation, had been already accepted by statesmanship as the central idea of a Department of State, which had nothing to do with the struggles of political parties. The measure, when it came before the Parliament, met, of course, with strong opposition, first in the House of Commons, and then in the House of Lords. Much of the opposition came, no doubt, from men of old-fashioned ways who dreaded and hated any changes in any institutions to which they had been accustomed, and who held that even pauperism itself acquired a certain sanctity from the fact that it had been fostered and encouraged by the wisdom of so many succeeding generations. Some of the opposition, however, was inspired by feelings of more purely sentimental and therefore perhaps of a more respectable order. It was urged that the new system of carried into law would bear hardly on the deserving as well as the undeserving poor, that the workhouse test would separate the husband from wife and the father from the children, and above all, that certain clauses of the new measure would leave the once innocent girl who had been led astray by some vile tempter to bear the whole legal responsibility as well as the public shame of her sin. It is not necessary for us now to go over at any length the long arguments which were brought up on both sides of the controversy. Many capable and high-minded observers were carried away by what may be called the sentimental side of the question, and forgot the enormous extent of the almost national corruption which the measure was striving to remove, in their repugnance to some of the evils which it did not indeed create, but which it failed to abolish. One weakness common to nearly all the arguments employed against the measure came from the facility there was for putting out of sight altogether during such a process of reasoning the fact that the daily and hourly effect of the existing system was to force the deserving and hard-working poor to sink into that very pauperism which it was the object of all lawmakers to diminish or to abolish altogether. The wit of man could not devise any system of poor relief which should never go wrong in its application, should never bear harshly on men and women who deserved and were striving for an honest and independent subsistence. The bill, however, was passed in the House of Commons by a large majority, it was carried after a hard fight through the House of Lords and received the royal assent in August 1834. It should be said that the Duke of Wellington, although usually strong and resolute as a party man, had good sense and fair spirit enough to make him a warm supporter of the measure, despite the vehement protestations of many of his own habitual supporters. Since that time, it seems to be admitted by common consent that the measure has accomplished 
all the beneficial results which its promoters anticipated from it, and has in many of its provisions worked even better than some of its supporters had expected. Of course, our poor law system has since that time been always undergoing modifications of some kind or another, and public criticism is continually pointing to the necessity for further improvement. We hear every now and then of cases in which, owing to local maladministration, some deserving men and women, honestly struggling to keep their heads above pauperism, are left to perish of hunger or cold. We read well-authenticated, only too well-authenticated instances, of actual starvation taking place in some wealthy district of a great city. We hear of parochial funds squandered and muddled away, of the ratepayers' money wasted in extravagance, and worse than extravagance, of miserable courts and alleys where the deserving and undeserving poor are alike neglected and uncared for. But it would be utterly impossible that some such defects as these should not be found in the management of any system worked by human mechanism for such a purpose as the relief of a great nation's poverty. The predominant fact is that we have a system which is based on the representative principle which is open to the inspection and the criticism of the whole country, and which frankly declares itself the enemy of professional beggary and the helper of the poverty which is honestly striving to help itself. Much remains yet to be done for the improvement of our national system of poor relief, but it has at least to be said that the reformed Parliament did actually establish a system founded on just principles and responsible to public judgment. Another of the great reforms which was accomplished in this age of reform found its occasion when the time came for the renewal of the East India Company's charter. The government and the Houses of Parliament had to deal with the future administration of one of the great empires the world had ever seen, brought together by events and forces the like of which had not been at work in any previous chapter of the world's history. We have already traced in this book the growth of the East India Company's possessions, a growth brought about by a combination of the qualities which belonged to the Alexanders and the Caesars, and of the qualities also which go to the expansion of peaceful commerce and the opening up of markets for purely industrial enterprise. The charter of the company had been renewed by legislation at long intervals and the first reformed parliament now found itself compelled to settle the conditions under which the charter should be renewed for another period of twenty years. Mr. Molesworth justly remarks that it was a fortunate circumstance that the reform bill had passed, and a reform parliament been elected before the question of the renewal of the company's charter was decided, for otherwise the directors of this great company and other persons interested in the maintenance of the monopolies and abuses connected with it would in all probability have returned to Parliament by means of rotten boroughs, a party of adherents sufficiently large to have effectually prevented the government and the House of Commons from dealing with this great question in the manner in which the interests of England and India alike demanded that it should be dealt with. Up to the time at which we have now arrived, the East India Company had an almost absolute monopoly of the whole Chinese trade, as well as the Indian trade, and a control over the administration of India, such as might well have gratified the ambition of a despotic monarch. 
The last renewal of the company's charter had been in 1813, and it was to run for twenty years, so that Lord Grey's government found themselves charged with the task of making arrangements for its continuance, or its modifications, or its abolition. Some distinction had already been effected between the powers of the company, as the ruler of a vast empire under the suzerainty of England, and its powers as a huge commercial corporation, or what we should now call a syndicate. But the company still retained its monopoly of the India and China trade. In the meantime, however, the principles of political economy had been asserting a growing influence over the public intelligence, and the question was coming to be asked more and more earnestly why a private company should be allowed the exclusive right of conducting the trade between England and India and China. An agitation against the monopoly began, as was but natural, among the great manufacturing and commercial towns in the north of England. Miss Martineau, in her History of the Thirty Years' Peace, ascribes the beginning of this movement to a well-known merchant and philanthropist of Liverpool, the late Mr. William Rathbone, whom some of us can still remember having known in our earlier years. Miss Martineau had probably good reasons for making such a statement, and in all events nothing is more likely than that such a movement began in Liverpool and began with such a man. In London, the directors and supporters of the East India Company were too powerful to give much chance to a hostile movement begun in the metropolis, and it needed the energy, the commercial independence, and the advanced opinions of the northern cities to give it an effective start. When the time came for the renewal of the company's charter, the government had made up their mind that the renewal should be conditional on the abolition of the commercial monopoly, and that the trade between the dominions of King William and the eastern populations should be thrown open to all the king's subjects. The measure passed through both houses of Parliament, with but little opposition. Mr. Molesworth is perfectly right in his remarks as to the different sort of reception which would have been given to such a measure if the charter had come up for renewal before the act of reform had abolished the nomination boroughs and the various other sham constituencies. But it is a striking proof of the hold which the representative principle and the doctrines of free trade were already beginning to have on public opinion that the monopoly of the East India Company should not have been able to make a harder fight for its existence. The wonder which a modern reader will be likely to feel as he studies the subject now is not that the monopoly should have been abolished with so little trouble, but that rational men should have admitted so long the possibility of any justification for its existence. The renewal of the Charter of the Bank of England gave an opportunity during the same session for an alteration in the conditions under which the bank maintains its legalized position and its relations with the state, and for a further reorganization of those conditions, which was in itself a distinct advance in the commercial arrangements of the empire. Other modifications have taken place from time to time since those days, and it is enough to say here that the alterations made by the first reformed parliament at the impulse of Lord Grey and his colleagues were in keeping with the movement of the commercial spirit and went along the path illumined by the growing light of a sound political economy. End of section 17